Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and ad-free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. This video is supported by Brilliant. Burning clean and hot, pushing the Friendship 7 spacecraft ever faster towards space. Several months later. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. You know, they say it, they're not really out of us. Are they really out of us? What? What? Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. What What happened? To say that we weren't ready for the announcement that we were going to the moon is an understatement. In fact, you could probably argue that we weren't ready to go to the moon when we went to the moon. Now, this isn't to take away from the accomplishments of the engineers and the astronauts that went to the moon. On the contrary, it's only because of their creativity and unbelievable determination that we were able to do it at all. But the state of technology at the time made the entire program as wily e. coyote as it comes, and the fact that we were able to do it seven times successfully, with an asterisk, uh, makes it nothing short of remarkable. So today we're going back to the moon and we're bringing with us new technology and 50 years of experience living and working in space. So in a lot of ways, this feels right. It feels like it should be happening now. But in the 60s, <laughs> I know I catch a lot of hell whenever I say this, but we had no business going to the moon at that point, you know, outside of the proxy Cold War thing we had going on. We were not really ready. Obviously, if you disagree with that, say so in the comments. I know you will. Like, I know you've probably heard a million times that the technology behind the cracked screen on your phone is, like, way vastly superior to what they had in Apollo 11. Yeah, that's a massive understatement. In fact, according to a 2019 article from Mac Observer, iPhones have over 100,000 times more processing power than the Apollo 11 computer did, over a million times more memory, and over 7 million times more storage. All that is to say that they had to come up with some crazy solutions to some overwhelming problems to get to the moon. And here are just some of the ways that they did that. Number one, the suits were made by a bra company. So let's start this list off with underwear, because I know what you guys like. Prior to the Apollo missions, astronauts basically flew in high altitude pressure suits like they would have had in the Air Force and the Navy. And they got the job done. Ed White became the first American to do a spacewalk in a spacesuit just like this. But for Apollo, NASA decided an upgrade was necessary. Apollo was all about getting to the moon. This was a totally different environment with totally different concerns. For one thing, they weren't gonna be weightless on the moon. You know, when you're weightless, it can be a bulky spacesuit and it can be kind of, you know, difficult to move around in. But it doesn't really matter that much because, you know, things aren't being shifted and forced around by gravity. So yeah, even though the gravity was going to be light on the moon, there still was going to be gravity that was going to affect these spacesuits and how they fit them. And for another thing, they needed to be able to like bend over and pick things up and explore around on a rugged terrain. So mobility was a big part of it. So to find this new design, NASA ran a competition, and they put it out amongst a bunch of companies to pitch their ideas for what they called the PGA, or the Pressure Garment Assembly. And the winning manufacturers would also partner with people who put together the, uh, the life support system that would go on the back of the assembly. That's relevant, but not what we're talking about right now. What we are talking about right now is the fact that the winning contract for the PGA went to a company called International Latex Corporation, or ILC. Now, you might not have heard of ILC, but you've absolutely heard of their subsidiary company, Playtex. Yeah, 
the bra company. Over its 74-year history, Playtex and other subsidiaries have manufactured everything from latex girdles, gloves, baby bottles, sippy cups, bras, and spacesuits. One of these things is not like the others. The specific division of ILC that created this was called the Government and Industrial Division, or now it's called ILC Dover. Over the course of three years, they worked on several different designs on this spacesuit, the, the PGA in question. Uh, one of the most final designs was called the A5L. They did that in A6L that added micrometeorite protection. And that would have been what wound up walking on the moon until the Apollo 1 tragedy. On January 27, 1967, during a routine training session, a fire swept through the Apollo 1 capsule, killing astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. This resulted in a slew of changes and upgrades to many components of the Apollo program, one of which was making the suits fireproof, or with non-flammable materials anyway. This resulted in pressure garment assembly A7L, the suit that would become the iconic look of the Apollo program. Alright, so why did NASA choose a girdle company to make their spacesuits? As ILC Dover representatives put in an educational document, their goal was to permit, quote, as close to a full range of body joint motion as in the nude condition, unquote. I'm pretty sure that if you asked the moonwalkers, they would tell you that it didn't quite get there. But, uh, you know, if you wanted to build a suit that moved along with you just as well as if you were naked, can't do much better than an underwear company. Number two, Neil was misquoted. Kind of a lot. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This has always driven me crazy. You've seen that clip a million times, and it's wrong. And it really messed me up when I was a kid. First of all, why is he saying one small step for, for man when, when, he, when he's literally like taking a jump off of that ladder? That doesn't look like a small step to me. That's because he didn't say it then. Um, he actually said it later, that, that moment where he jumped down from the ladder to the pad. Like the way it worked was first he jumped down from the ladder to the pad and stood on the pad that was on the surface of the moon. And he actually jumped back up once just to make sure that they could get back up, which is a fairly important thing. So he tested that a couple of times and then he turned around and he took like one small step off of the landing pad onto the moon's surface. So he was saying this is one small step. So that was the one small step. It wasn't the getting off the ladder thing, but it was edited that way because visually you see him taking a step. You can't really see him take the step when he turns around the other way because the camera was situated that way. So they edited it like that, have been playing it like that ever since, and it's been misleading us for years. Second of all, I never understood that quote when I was a kid. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What's the difference between man and mankind? Why is it a small step for one and a giant leap for the other? This, 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 I never could understand this. Kid Joe has a confusion. That's because what he actually said was one small step for a man. Or at least that's what he was trying to say. And he's acknowledged this in interviews, but even he has admitted that he can't hear the A in there. But that has not stopped people from trying. In 2006, a computer programmer named Peter Shanford claimed that he had isolated the waveform of the A in the sound that though brief and nearly inaudible, it was actually picked up by Neil's microphone. Many sound experts dismiss Ford's claim, but in 2013, a couple of teams from Michigan State University and Ohio State University said that maybe he was right. Their reasoning had to do with accents. Neil Armstrong was born and raised in Wapakoneta, Ohio, and Ohioans aren't really known for having strong accents or anything, but just like everywhere else in the world, they have their own particular idioms. And the MSU and OSU researchers said that if you factor that accent into account, that you could find an A sandwiched in there in that quote. Or more like an uh. 
the researchers actually did a lot of work into this. They, they studied people from the Ohio area, the area close to where Neil grew up, and, and listened to them and had them say the, the term for a, like for a, and they noticed that um, they do have a tendency to sort of squish the uh so much that you can barely hear it. Look, I'm from Texas, so I am not in any place to make fun of anybody else's accent, and I'm certainly not gonna, you know, criticize the syntax of somebody who is stepping on the moon for the first time. I mean, he was saying some important words, but I'm pretty sure there were some other things on his mind at the time. And I think it's also worth mentioning that it's possible the signal could have just cut out for a split second. I mean, that happens to me all the time, and I'm sitting like two feet away from the receiver. They had a signal traveling 250,000 miles with 50-year-old technology from today. I mean, it's remarkable they got anything. And besides, um, if you listen, you can kind of hear it. It's one small step for man. It's one small step for man. It's one small step for man. And yet for years, um, it's been misquoted everywhere as one small step for man instead of one small step for a man. But now let's take a look at another Neil Armstrong quote that happened just a little bit before that. Number three, the command and lunar modules had great names. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Again, you've heard that a million times and you probably know that the Eagle was the call sign for the lunar module. By the way, quick side note, uh, Tranquility Base? That was the first time anybody had said that term. Um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz kind of came up with that before they took off, and they didn't tell anybody about it. They kept it to themselves, with, with the exception of one person, uh, Charlie Duke, who was the communications person at Mission Control. Yeah, they kept it a secret from everybody else until that moment. Fun little fact. Anyway, Eagle was the name of the lunar module, and Columbia was the name of the command module, which Michael Collins was floating around the moon in. Uh, but they were obviously very patriotic names, because this was a big patriotic moment in our history and everything, but all of the other missions had some pretty cool names too. Starting with Apollo 9, which were named Gumdrop and Spider, obviously because they look like a gumdrop and a spider, and Apollo 10 had much more fun names with Charlie Brown and Snoopy. In fact, originally Apollo 11 was gonna continue the, the tradition of fun names. They were gonna be called Haystack and Snowcone, uh, but you know, somebody stepped in and had to make it all patriotic. Also, Michael Collins apparently hated the name Columbia when he first heard it. He thought it sounded really pompous, uh, but they were able to change his mind on it because the name of the cannon in Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon, uh, the cannon that shot people to the moon, was called the Columbiad, and uh, that, that kind of won him over. Anyway, after Apollo 11 was Apollo 12 with the names Yankee Clipper and Intrepid, the ill-fated Apollo 13 ships were named Odyssey and Aquarius, Apollo 14 had Kitty Hawk and Antares, Apollo 15 had Endeavor and Falcon, Apollo 16 was named Casper and Orion, and Apollo 17 got a little bit more patriotic again with America and Challenger. Yeah, Challenger. Actually, it's interesting how many of these names would show up again, like Endeavor and Falcon. And Orion, maybe, eventually. Number four, the lunar lander was a tight fit. Space vehicles are always on the small side because uh, there's only so much you can fit into a rocket fairing and keeping down weight is always the name of the game. But in space, that's not usually as much of an issue as it is down here on Earth. You know, I always say, if you look around your room, uh, even if you're in a small room, just imagine if you were weightless and could use all the space on the ceiling and all the corners and stuff, there's actually a lot more room in there uh, once you are not tethered to the ground. So yeah, the fact that the Apollo command and lunar modules were small, that's no surprise. Uh, but the difference is the lunar module, it wasn't weightless. They were stuck on the floor in the lunar module while they were on the moon. The Apollo lunar module had about 160 cubic feet of space, which is about the same as a Subaru Outback, which doesn't sound too bad, but imagine being in a Subaru Outback while wearing that giant EVA suit. 
and all the life support systems and equipment and experiments and uh, eventually 220 kilograms of rock. Oh yeah, and another guy. They were so strapped for room on the limb that they actually didn't have any room for furniture of any kind. So the astronauts just had to sit on equipment or the ascent stage engine cover that was right in the middle of everything. Yeah, the sleeping situation in Apollo 11 was abysmal. One of them had to literally sleep, just kind of leaned up against some equipment, almost in a vertical position. The other one had to just sort of fold up into a ball over in the corner in this tiny capsule that was about as big as about 10 of the filing cabinets that you see behind me there. Throw on top of that the fact that sun was constantly blindingly coming through a window and the loud noise and whirs of all the life support equipment and just the excitement of being on the news. I say on the news? Not on the news, on the moon. They, they were on the moon. They were excited about being on the no I'm doing it again. Anyway, they had trouble sleeping on Apollo 11. So they tried to fix this in future missions. Future Apollo missions would incorporate makeshift hammocks that would crisscross each other, and some astronauts had even took sleeping pills. Some found that stripping down to their constant wear garments, which are essentially long johns, helped them to sleep a lot more comfortably. They were probably really happy to get back into the command module and get out of that ascent stage once they got back off the moon. Uh, after that, of course, once they moved everything over into the command module, they would jettison the ascent stage for it to crash back into the moon. Number five, Eagle's ascent module may still be orbiting the moon. Like the Earth, the moon is not a perfect sphere. It's, it's kind of egg-shaped, and we're looking at the fat end. So yeah, the moon's mass, and therefore its gravity, is not evenly distributed. And because of that, we're not 100% sure what happened to the eagle once it was jettisoned. And yeah, according to a recent computer module, it might still be orbiting the moon. The modeling was done by an independent researcher, James Metter, and was published in the journal Planetary and Space Science. Metter was trying to find where eagle crashed, and the answer he got back was nowhere. He tried varying the parameters in a hundred different ways, but every single time he did it, it just came back saying that it's probably still in orbit. Uh, Scott Manley did a great video on this. I'll point to it down in the description, or I'll put a link up here. It's definitely worth watching, like all of his stuff. But yeah, the gist is, assuming it didn't explode at some point, it might still be up there. And we should be able to find it. Uh, it's happened before anyway. Yeah, the lunar orbiter Chandrayaan-1 went missing uh, back in 2009, I believe, and in 2016 they were able to find it on radar, still orbiting. So yeah, something similar could happen with Eagle. Somebody might uh, look close enough and, and find it. Get looking, people. Number six, Aldrin's mother's maiden name was Moon. I mean, come on. But yeah, Buzz's mother's name was Marion Aldrin. Um, she married his father, Edwin Eugene Aldrin Sr., but before she got married to him, her maiden name was Marion Moon. Apparently that had gotten around uh, after the moon landing and the New York Times asked Buzz about it, and he responded by saying, quote, yes, I didn't feel NASA needed to know that. Somebody would think I was trying to get favored treatment because my ancestors had the name Moon. He was probably just joking about that, but no, a super weird coincidence, the second guy to walk on the moon was something of a moon himself. But he did make sure to use his paternal name, Aldrin, when he filled out his customs forms when he got back. Oh yeah, that's another fun little fact. Number seven, the astronauts had to fill out customs forms. Yeah, I heard this and I had to look it up for myself, but yeah, uh, when they landed back near Hawaii on July 24th, 1969, uh, when they got back into the state, they had to fill out customs declaration forms. I mean, they definitely left the country. But here it is. As you can see, it's signed by all three astronauts. It shows the flight manifest as leaving from Cape Kennedy and arriving at Honolulu with a stopover at the moon. Under cargo, they had to declare moon rock, moon dust, and samples. 
and the departure point up at the top, the moon. And one of the most interesting ones under, quote, any condition on board which may lead to the spread of disease, it says, to be determined. <laughs> Yikes. But yeah, as most of you probably know, they were concerned about the possibility of them bringing home some moon germs. Uh, so they were quarantined for three weeks once they got back to Earth. Three weeks? <laughs> Amateurs. Number eight, Nixon had another speech prepared, just in case. So yeah, there were like a million things that could have gone wrong with Apollo 11, from the launch to the rendezvous to the landing, all of that. But maybe the most tragic outcome would be one where Neil and Buzz were stranded on the moon. It was a possibility. They had one shot at getting that ascent stage to light to get them off of the moon. And if it didn't light, they were going to be stuck there and just with the whole world watching until their oxygen ran out. Or they bit into the cyanide pills that they may or may not have had. And it seems that this was the eventuality that the Nixon administration was most concerned about because they had a speech prepared just in case. It was written by speechwriter William Sapphire. Um, luckily, it was not needed, of course, but uh, they did stick it away in the National Archives. It resurfaced again around the 30th anniversary in 1999, so we've known about it for a while, but last year in 2020, some MIT researchers decided to use this speech to do a deep fake of Nixon actually giving the speech. They had an actor deliver the lines and then use the face and voice of Richard Nixon to actually deliver the speech and then put it together in a short film. This was released online and it played at various film and technology festivals around the world, but they were very careful at the beginning to have a description, a caption that said that uh, this was not a real video. In fact, those are the very first words on the video, this is not real. And that was kind of the point of the film, to sort of show the dangers inherent in AIs, you know, manipulating video and stuff to create something that's realistic enough to get people to believe in all kinds of misinformation. It's a little creepy on a lot of different levels. I mean, just think about how this could be used to, you know, get people to change history on things. I mean, the Mandela Effect people would go nuts over this. But anyway, in case you haven't seen it, here's a clip of it. And I must reiterate, this is fake. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Fates has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. I gotta say, it's a pretty good speech. I'll put a link to it in the description down there. But uh, yeah, super glad that moment didn't really happen. <laughs> now to something a little less horrifying. Number nine, the astronauts drank fizzy water. According to Michael Collins in his 1974 memoir, they had a problem with the hydrogen gas filters on the fuel cell that they used to combine hydrogen and oxygen to make water, and it also was used to power the capsule. So the filter was allowing too much hydrogen into the fuel cell, so the excess hydrogen was sort of being saturated into the water and making it fizzy. So yeah, the astronauts were basically drinking club soda the whole time. Except instead of being carbonated, uh, meaning that it's infused with carbon dioxide, it was actually infused with hydrogen, making it hydrogenated? Hydrogenated? So I guess you could say the astronauts chose gas with their water. Because when you go to restaurants, they ask if you want it still or with gas when you order water, and with gas means that it's the, the soda water. It's, it's, really, it's really more of a thing outside of the U.S. than, than in the United States. It's, uh... Shut up, it's a solid joke. Speaking of with gas, though, it turns out that drinking this fizzy water made them a little bit sort of, you know, kind of seriously gassy. According to Collins, quote, 
These bubbles produce gross flatulence in the lower bowel, resulting in a not-so-subtle and pervasive aroma, which reminds me of a mixture of wet dog and marsh gas. Luckily, it's not like they're all trapped with each other inside of a Subaru Outback with the windows rolled up or anything. And number 10, the astronauts trained sideways. Apollo astronauts had to train in all kinds of weird places, from giant swimming pools to far corners of the Earth to study different kinds of crazy geology that were similar to what they expected on the moon. In fact, NASA teamed up with the U.S. Geological Survey to actually blast craters into Cinder Lake in Arizona to give them a better feeling of what it's like on the moon. You know, by this time we had a good handle on maneuvering and, and getting around in zero gravity. Most of the astronauts had flown on Gemini, and, and they had various ways of simulating that on Earth, like on the Vomit Comet. But nobody had ever walked on a surface with only one-sixth gravity. Nobody had ever experienced that. And they didn't know how to simulate that. Like, how do you just turn down the dial on gravity a little bit? To answer this, and about a million other questions, NASA set up the Lunar Landing Research Facility at Langley Research Center. Here they stopped at nothing to simulate the entire mission as closely as possible. This means creating a full-size lunar lander that's supported by a gantry that would support five-sixths of the weight, giving it the feeling of one-sixth gravity. And to practice walking around in one-sixth gravity, they came up with this crazy idea. It was called the Lunar Gravity Simulator, and they basically hung astronauts sideways and had them walk on a surface nine degrees off vertical, which simulated one-sixth gravity along the spine. Now, obviously this was different from walking on the moon because you're still dealing with that downward force of gravity, but it did give you an idea of how high you could jump. I guess they thought of nothing else that could give you an idea of how fast the ground would push away from you when you were walking up there. And it just looks like a lot of fun. All that attention to detail and training obviously paid off. In fact, when Armstrong landed back on Earth and somebody asked him what it was like landing on the moon, he said this, quote, it's like Langley. The only thing they probably could use more of was a little more dust on the surface. Just another example of the thousands of unknown but hugely important people that made this insane moment in human history come true. And here we are, we find ourselves at another major point in history, one that seems to have split us in two. So maybe it's a good time to remember that when we come together, we can actually do some really amazing things, if the will is there. And by the way, if you're wondering how the hell people could have gotten to the moon with so much less computer power than what's in your pocket right now, it's because they had a superhuman understanding of the physics behind all of it. And if you would like to understand it just as well, well, you know Brilliant will help you get there. And two courses specifically that would help you to get there are the Classical Mechanics course and the Gravitational Physics course. Understand the rocket equation for the first time, get an appreciation for how difficult it is to get off the ground with the Classical Mechanics course. And once you're out of the atmosphere, figure out how to not come back down again by learning more about how gravity works. And by the way, if you haven't checked out Brilliant lately, it's gotten a lot more interactive. So if you're one of those people like me that has to visualize and play with something to understand it, Brilliant's got you covered. This just makes it easier to understand the core concepts and the fundamentals courses, which sets you up for success in the more advanced courses later on. Next thing you know, you've got supervillain knowledge, and that's when the real fun begins. Plus, they make it easy to make learning a habit, so you can do it on your mobile device and even offline, so whenever you're, like, waiting for food or something, you can bang out a problem or two. And if you want to get a taste of what I'm talking about, they have free daily brain teasers, and you can do the first section of any of their courses for free, just so you can see what it's all about. But if you want to sign up for the premium subscription that gives you access to all their courses and you're one of the first 200 people to do so, you can get 20% off by going to brilliant.org slash answerswithjoe. It's just a great way to learn things. And like I said, they've been adding a lot of stuff. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, now might be a good time to do it. So brilliant.org slash answerswithjoe. Links down in the description. Phoebe says that Brilliant is awesome. You should go. Yay! Big thanks to Brilliant for supporting this video and a huge shout out to Answer Files on Patreon that are supporting this channel, forming an awesome community, and just 
overall being really cool people. Uh, we got some new members. I got to murder their names real quick. We got Mark Wilkins, Nicola Maddock, Francis Del Vecchio, Michael Trainer, Vic, Rachel Ann, Case Jackson, the Kiwi Chrononaut, uh, Jessica Finch, Chili Bot, John White, Wynn Morgan, and Natsar. Thank you guys so much. If you'd like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive stuff, and just be part of an awesome community, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, maybe check this one out. Google thinks you might like that one or any of the others that I've done. I've done a whole bunch at this point. And if you do like them and uh, you want to see more, I invite you to subscribe. I'll come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. You guys go out there and have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.